Hello and welcome to the Let's Get Fictional podcast. This is a podcast where we read, review, summarize, and discuss books that are interesting and impactful. To get things kicked off, we're talking about Hatchet by Gary Paulson. Have you read Hatchet? Um, I read Hatchet when I was a kid. I don't even remember when, but I do remember it was the first podcast where I actually enjoyed the, or I'm sorry, oh my gosh, the first book where I actually enjoyed it. Uh, I read a lot growing up and just kind of thought it was something I had to do. And then I read Hatchet and I was like, hey, books can be good, books can be fun. I, I might actually enjoy them. Uh, that was one of the first. When I think back to what was the very beginning of your book reading journey, and I read a lot of books. If you know me, uh, yeah, read a lot of books and I enjoy it. It's, it's probably my favorite thing to do uh, when I do have time. And sometimes I'm listening to books when I don't have time, when I'm out on the road or on a run or something. And this was the first. So this is why I'm reading it. Obviously, it's a work of fiction as well. Um, it, it is considered a, a pretty impactful book. Uh, it won the Newbery Honor book when it when it came out initially and uh, has won a few awards since then. I have a very old copy. My copy says over two, two million copies sold. I believe that number is extremely small compared to the actual number today. So... We'll go through it. I'm gonna do an intro on the author so we know who we're talking about as far as who wrote it. And then we're gonna go through the actual book, chapter by chapter. Um, it is uh, more of a summary. We're not reading the book together. Um, my goal is uh, to save you time in a few ways. If you just wanna hear about this book and maybe go read it later, um, this will intrigue you. It will give you, a, it'll give away a few things. I won't sit here and just spoil the entire book, but um, it'll probably make you wanna read it. If you were intrigued about reading this book and then after doing this, sur this summary with me, you decide, uh, you know what, not for me. That's great, it will save you some time. <laughs> but uh, I loved this book, so that's why we're gonna go through it and that's why I've chosen it to be my first book uh, for the podcast. So let's do an intro on Gary Paulson. Uh, Gare Bear was born in Minneapolis in 1939, another reason why I like this book because I am originally from Minneapolis. Um, considered one of the great wilderness writers. Uh, he, a, a few things about him. Uh, his father served in the military, actually, under uh, General George Patton. And uh, another significant part of his childhood, while he was in Chicago, um, well, he, he had a mother as well. Um, but one of the more significant parts of his childhood he talks about in a book called Eastern Sun, um, if you want to get into that. But he snuck out of Chicago while he was living there. I think he, he said like his mother was taking a nap, I think. And a vagrant man uh, came upon him, or at least that's the wording he says, um, came upon him and attempted to like molest him and, and, and abuse him. And his mom found that and, and beat the man. <laughs> no detail, just beat the man. Um, so that's a, that's a significant part of his childhood. Uh, his mother had an affair at one point and was an alcoholic. So you will see, uh, there will be themes of that in this book, not the alcoholic part, but the affair part. Um, he joined the army after dropping out of high school. He served for three years. Um, he chose to settle in New Mexico after the army had brought him there on, on assignment. And uh, I believe he stayed there the rest of his life, like for way, 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 the long majority of his life. Um, Married three times, has three total children. Um, I'm not sure which marriage they're from uh, or if maybe all different. Um, kind of a fun fact about him is he did live on a houseboat in the Pacific Ocean for a while. Uh, I'm assuming it was near the shore, I, I don't know, but <laughs> uh, kind of a fun fact. He did a couple things about him that are gonna be really relevant in this book is, uh, or that's gonna come alive in his first ever book. Um, he, he completed the Iditarod, I see that right, uh, trail dog sled race in 1983. He, he took 41st out of 54, and it took him 17 days, and it, almost 18 days. Um, he tried to do it again, I believe, but he, he just couldn't do it with his heart uh, condition. He did end up dying of cardiac arrest in 2021, so it's been about two years since he passed. He was 82. He wrote well over 200 books in that time frame. He had a 55-year writing career. Um, and I, I took some of these uh, statistics from uh, an, an article on um, an author's legacy by the U.S. Sun. Uh, I wrote, or I wrote, um, I read that he, at times in the peak of his career, wrote up to 20 hours a day. And if you ever Google him, you will find a mountain man. He looks like a mountain man, <laughs> like a very, very gentle, bearded mountain man. So uh, that's pretty much what he looks like. Um, 
so let's quick go through his, his, his books that are relevant to Hatchet. So just to be clear today, we're gonna read my copyright 1987 book. It's a cover with, uh, uh, you'll, you'll learn his name is Brian on the cover. Uh, white kid with dark hair. He's got, there's like an outline of a hatchet and an outline of a wolf on it and a moon and kind of a pretty backdrop, woods in the sky and mountains. So that's my copy, 1987 copyright. Um, <laughs> the back, you flip it over, it's like, you're gonna wanna pull this book off the shelf. It just says alone, that's it. And then below there, um, it describes like two, two sentences about Brian and how he's alone in the wilderness. It's like, whoa. Um, this is the first of a five book series. Um, I haven't decided if I'm going to go through the rest of these because this is a pretty young book. I'm not going to read many of these types of books on this podcast, but um, figured good one to kick off with uh, in case we get into them or if you want to get into them. Um, I have read these as well, and these are great books. I would I would agree, although Hatchet is the best of them. Um, the second one is called The River, 1991. Third is Brian's Winter, 1996. The fourth is Brian's Return, 1999. The fifth is Brian's Hunt, 2003. I'm gonna go through those again because some of them have alternate titles and I've seen them written differently in, in the in the title. So if you're looking for these, you can find obviously the ha Hatchet, 1987. The second one, The River, uh, is also called Hatchet, The Return. The third one is called Brian's Winter. It's also called Hatchet, Winter. The fourth one is called I'm sorry, did I get that? Yeah, Brian's Winter, Hatchet Winter. Okay, the fourth, Brian's Return, and that one can also be called Hatchet the Call. And the fifth is Brian's Hunt. Um, I remember Brian's Hunt the best out of these five, out of, outside of Hatchet, obviously, because we're gonna talk about it and I've been reading it again. Brian's Hunt is one of the most epic stories of hunting and triumph I've, I mean, it's, it's awesome. Um, so, but if you're gonna read them, go through them. I mean, they don't take long, like this book is, about 200 pages and it's written in like relatively larger font than than most books so you will you'll notice that you could get through this book in a weekend uh, pretty even i'm not in any way a speed reader i just read a lot and um you can get through this book in a weekend so i would agree with all of those books i don't think any of them are, are much more than 200 pages so without further ado we're seven minutes in let's get into the book so hatchet um chapter one we have an unnamed kind of disembodied narrator throughout the book so it never says who it is um we might we'll, we'll get we'll get into more of that but yeah we have an unnamed narrator who's who's telling you about the whole book um we start in a plane a cessna 406 which i just i was curious i've got a neighbor in the air force so i was asking about it and it's basically a two to four seater plane um not a lot of weight not a lot of fuel not you're not going super far if you're in that kind of plane um he was 13 years old when this book starts uh he left hampton new york which is northeast uh, new york on the border of vermont heading into canada is really all you know at this time uh, we get our first dialogue in the book. There's really not a lot of dialogue in the book. He just, uh, he's alone most of the book. <laughs> um, but he's with the pilot and uh, the pilot just says, hey, get in the co-pilot seat. Uh, and as soon as that happens, Brian, uh, his mind seemingly has been in this place and goes back to thinking about his parents divorced. It just says, the thinking started. There's a lot of those kinds of things. You'll you'll see the author say things like the thinking started or there were these things to do. Just like, a, a, it's like the, it's its own paragraph. And uh, you'll, you'll see a lot of that. So the thinking started, he's thinking about his parents' divorce as he's going up in this bushwhacker plane. That's my words, I don't know if it's called that. Um, Brian felt his eyes beginning to burn and there would be, and he knew there would be tears. We learned that he's leaving his mom and heading to his dad who lives in Canada. His mom's from Hampton, New York area. Um, Brian and the pilot have some small talk uh, and then the pilot asks if he's ever flown before. Of course, Brian hasn't, uh, but the pilot does uh, fortuitously explain a few things about the basics of flying, like pushing the wheel around and moving the plane left and right, um, doing those kinds of things. Uh, he, he does some pedal, the pedal pushes and steering. Um, Brian is overwhelmed with thoughts uh, on the like instead of flying, I mean, he's, he's flying a little bit, but he's really just thinking about fights at home and his parents' divorce. So that's, that's where his head's at. Uh, he notices the pilot has terrible gas, like from page, I think two or so on, the pilot's like, sorry, man, it must be something I ate. And he just says awful gas. Um, as this is happening, he goes back to his thoughts about uh, when he left his dad, his dad called him a little scout last time he saw him and he gave him a hatchet and put the hatchet on his belt. So he's got a hatchet right now, uncomfortably hanging from his belt area. Um, 
page 10 is when we get to the pilot. By the way, this is page 10 in my book. Like I said, the, the 1987 copy of Hatchet, soft cover. Um, <laughs> the biggest thing here, we'll, we'll finish out chapter one with, um, the pilot has cardiac arrest and dies. Uh, he jolts a few times as some words that are said and he um, think things do not go well at this point. The pilot starts jolting around and and um, he you, you follow with the word that it just says silence and then it says uh, stopped and it says stopped three times. Just silence and stopped. Um, a quote here, he was alone in a roaring plane with no pilot. He was alone, alone. So that's our quote. So moving into chapter two, um, Brian pulls up and down and, and gets a feel for the plane best he can. Um, and just to call it out here, we're already in chapter two and we have a 13 year old driving a plane with a dead person in the seat next to him. I mean, just, just let that for a minute sink in and how incredibly insane that would be. Um, and scary. Uh, he tries to radio, but the signal's not clear. He does get through to someone at some point, but it just like the, the back and forth doesn't go well enough. Um, we get a stage set on page 20 where, uh, oh, he, here's the, um, I forgot that I actually did include some radio here. So he says, uh, quote, I do not know the flight number. My name is Brian Robeson and we left Hampton, New York. Pause. This is actually why I'm reading this to you because it's kind of a stage set for who's in the book and who he is. So Brian Robeson, uh, we left Hampton, New York, headed for the Canadian oil fields to visit my father and I do not know how to fly an airplane and the pilot dot, dot, dot. And he lets go of the mic and it, it can't, um, he just doesn't get it to work again. And then Brian throws up. That's chapter two. We're still up in the plane. Uh, chapter three starts with going to die, Brian thought. Um, in page 27, we get a depiction of a 13-year-old boy actively making the decision to crash the plane into a large lake. Uh, again, I'm doing some heavy summaries here, but you, you can get into the book. Um, think about making that decision. Think about being in a plane by yourself, especially at age 13, and thinking, I see a large lake. I'm going to go ahead and down the plane over there. No big deal. Um, quote, then everything happened at once uh, as the trees came in and then unquote, uh, as the trees come into view, the ground is visible. Everything's moving really fast. And uh, page 28, we have a plane crash. Um, I'm going to read a quote here. There was a great wrenching as the wings caught the pines at the side of the clearing and broke back, ripping back just just outside the main braces. Dust and dirt blew off the floor into his face so hard he thought there must have been some kind of explosion. He was momentarily blinded and slammed forward in the seat, smashing his head against the wheel. Then a wild crashing sound, ripping of metal, and the plane rolled, think about that. <laughs> the plane rolled to the right and blew through the trees, over the water and down, down to slam into the lake, skip once on the water as hard as concrete, water that tore the windshield out and shattered the side windows, water that drove him back into the seat. Somebody was screaming, screaming as the plane drove down into the water. Someone screamed tight animal screams of fear and pain, and he did not know that it was his sound, that he roared against the water that took him and the plane still deeper down into the water. He saw nothing but sensed blue, cold blue-green, and he raked at the seatbelt, tore his nails loose on one hand, and ripped at it until it released, and somehow the water trying to kill him to end him. Somehow, he pulled himself out of the shattered front window and clawed up into the blue, felt something hold him back, felt his windbreaker tear, and he was free, tearing free, ripping free. Then we have a moment where he's like, so far, it's so far to the surface, my lungs, and, and he, he gets out. Um, so uh, chapter four, I know I'm skipping it. I know this is moving fast. Uh, chapter four, post-crash, we get Brian uh, on the bank of the, of the well, I was going to say river, uh, bank of the L-shaped lake, with the memory of divorce and the secret. You're gonna see that secret a lot. Um, he opens his eyes and screams, essentially how the next chapter begins. Um, quote, into the trees and out onto the lake, the plane had crashed and sunk in the lake and he had somehow pulled free, pulled free. Um, and he's in pain, in a lot of pain. Another quote here, he says, nobody ever mentioned mosquitoes and flies. <laughs> um, so we're in pain. We're experiencing things we've never experienced in the wilderness. We just crashed a plane, think about that. And he's thinking about his parents' divorce as well and a secret that he witnessed, uh, which we'll get into. Uh, he does mention a few times it's the base of a, of a large L-shaped lake. So picture that how you will. Um, he's in a forest and he notices how green it is. So, quote, everything was green. So green it went into him. 
That's interesting. I'll read that again. So green, everything was green. So green it went into him. The forest was largely made up of pines and spruce with stands of low brush. And there's more there, but that's kind of the, the set the stage. Um, he sleeps twice after the crash. The second time he crawls under a tree and has a little bit more of a proper sleep. That's pretty much chapter four. We've crashed a plane. Um, that's, that's, I mean, he, yeah, that, that's about it. We'll keep going. Um, his eyes open, hammered open, and there were these things about himself that he knew instantly. He was unbelievably, viciously thirsty. Those are two quotes in the beginning of chapter five. Um, you're going to see a lot of things like this in this book. The narrator does this a lot. So things like, and there were these things about himself that he knew. These things. You're going to see that a lot. It's a really interesting way. And, and what I like is you hear this, you, you read this before you know what that is. So you can start to think about what that would be for you. That's why I think I related to this book so well. It is a young boy. I think I read this about the same age as him. My parents are also divorced. I just think it was a significant book for me and part of it because you're just like these things I know about my, it, it, I don't know about you, but I'll read a book and I'll immediately start looking up in the stars and be like, huh. And I sometimes will drift off a little bit, not necessarily sleeping, but dreaming about something or thinking about something. And this book uh, chartered a lot of that thought. So I'd be curious if that same thing happens to you when you read this book, but he's super thirsty. Um, he goes out to the lake. He goes in the middle of the lake because he doesn't want to drink water from the shore. I'm very similar. I probably would have done the same thing. He thought the shore water looked dirty or something. Um, now this is in the Canadian wilderness. This, the lake is probably about as clean as a lake can be, um, minus there's a plane in it. Uh, so he goes out and he drinks uh, water, but then he realizes as he's doing that, that there's a plane and a pilot in the lake. <laughs> so um, I forget, I think he, I think he throws up again. Um, so he, he says out loud, and again, there's not a lot of dialogue. So you'll notice I did quote a decent amount of dialogue just because it's, it's significant and there's really not, not much, but he says, uh, here I am, where's that? <laughs> And he knows he's somewhere in the Canadian North Woods. And then he, there's a quote that says, then came the hunger. So he remembers the hatchet and it's amazingly still on his belt. Um, he says to himself, you are your most valuable asset. You are the best thing you have. And then he yells out loud, I'm hungry, like five times. <laughs> I'm hungry, 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 hungry. And you get like animal noises back. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to read a couple quotes. I'm going to bounce around pages 52 to 55. This is a, a decent stage set as well. Um, yeah, so we're going to get through the end of chapter five here, and uh, it'll, it'll kind of put you where you need to be. He sat again by the tree. In case you have my copy, I'm on page 52. Um, he sat again by the tree, his back against it. There was a thing bothering him. Again, there's that, there's that thing right there. There's a thing bothering him. He wasn't quite sure what it was, but it kept chewing at the edge of his thoughts. Something about the plane and the pilot and things would change. He realizes that I'll summarize the next couple pages or paragraph. He's off course. He realizes that when he took over the plane and the pilot jolted the plane a few times, having a heart attack, which I've very much skipped over. So it'd be good to go back. There's a lot of uh, good writing there. Um, he's off course. He's way off course. He knows he's, he, um, He's, he thinks the plane was going about 160 miles an hour, even if it was a little off course. He says, quote, by now, or Brian might now be sitting several hundred miles, miles off to the side of the recorded flight plan, which is a really scary thought. Again, 13 years old, out by himself. Um, chapter uh, five, page 54, a couple, couple quotes here. Um, I'll tell you why I'm reading these in a minute, but it would be all right. They would find him, maybe not tomorrow, but soon, soon, soon. They would find him soon. Gradually, like sloshing oil, his thoughts settled back and, and the panic was gone. So I love the repetition for emphasis. Obviously he could use exclamation points, he could use all capitals or something, but instead he writes, maybe they would find him, Not, uh, maybe not tomorrow, but soon, soon, soon again. Maybe they would find him soon. I, I just, for some reason, that gets me in Brian's head. I am, I am him in that moment and I can, just, I just, it's like, it took, it's like my brain, it takes a few times, you can ask anyone, it takes me a minute to learn something. Sometimes a few times I have to learn it, get through my head. I feel like this is doing that to me here. And I'm getting into Brian's head by just um, hearing his thoughts like that. And I love how it says sloshing oil. Like of all the things, especially because he was heading to the oil fields. I don't know if that's why he thought that way, but I've never thought of sloshing oil in my head as, as my thoughts, but that's a kind of a cool image. A um, little bit further along, uh, quoting here, and nights, uh, and nights, he was deep in the woods, 
uh, and didn't have any matches. Couldn't make a fire. There were large things in the woods. There were wolves, he thought, and bears, other things. In the dark, he would open, or he would be open in here, uh, just sitting at the bottom of a tree. He looked around suddenly, felt the hair on his back of his neck go up. Things might be looking at him right now, waiting for him, waiting for dark so that they could move in and take him. He fingered the hatchet at his belt. It was the only weapon he had, but it was something. Another quote here, uh, I have to get motivated, he thought. Remembering per per uh, Perpich, which uh, is a person he was quoting earlier, right now, I'm all I've got. I've got to do something. That's the end of chapter five. Uh, I think Perpich was a teacher, but I honestly don't remember. Um, so page 59 on chapter six, moving into chapter six here, uh, there is a, a quote I wanted to read about food. So I'm gonna read it, but then I, I'm curious your thoughts. Um, I, I wanted to kind of, on, more so on how it's written, but also it's just a, a significant part of the book. So we're kind of in a hungry phase next day, essentially. We're on day two of being here in this, in this wilderness L-shaped lake with a crashed plane. Brian leaned against the rock and stared out at the lake. What in all of this was there to eat? And again, these are thoughts, not quotes, as far as he's thinking, he's not talking. Um, he was so used to having food just be there, just always being there. Again, more repetition. When he was hungry, he went to the icebox or to the store or sat down in a, uh, at a meal his mother cooked. Or, he thought, remembering a meal. Uh, remembering a meal now. Oh. <laughs> it was last Thanksgiving last year, the last Thanksgiving they had as a family before mother demanded the divorce and father moved out the following January. Brian already knew the secret but did not know that it would cause them to break up and that it, it and thought it might work out. The secret that his father still did not know that he would try to tell him when he saw him. Okay, here's why I wrote this. And just to be clear, I already said, I know my parents are divorced. Um, there was none of that in my family that I, no, no affairs or anything um, that I, you know, so, so I'm not insinuating anything there personally, but I did want to read this page 59 he has, we have two paragraphs. We have a, a small paragraph and a large paragraph. We have hunger, which is extremely significant. He has no idea what he's gonna do. He is alone in the wilderness. And then the next thought is, last time I had a great meal, my parents were about to get divorced, or, or at least I thought maybe and it could have worked out. But think about juxtaposing these thoughts while you're alone in the wilderness. <laughs> Just, um, he's reeling. I mean, it's like, kid needs therapy but instead he, he's in he's in the Canada woods um it's just incredible to me to to see this so um a couple things here trying to keep it simple uh he's he says trying to have simple short thoughts simple keep it simple I have been in a plane crash I am going to find some food I am going to find berries that's essentially chapter six so um going into chapter seven he he eats a bunch of things he he ends up calling gut cherries uh, later in the book I believe he calls them gut cherries maybe gut berries um and he wakes up saying mother. He's screaming mother. And he wakes up with aggressive stomach pain. I believe he throws up again. Um, he says it's as if the berries exploded in his stomach and ripped and tore at him. Then he remembers the secret where he sees his mom kiss another man, not his father slash her husband. And that's when we learn about the secret. And he says aloud, too many gut cherries. <laughs> again, this guy's mind is everywhere. I mean, he is thinking about everything. And... Um, I guess when you're alone with your thoughts, yeah, that's just, that's where he's at. So we have, uh, again, more juxtaposition of he's dealing with real life, like life and death, real life. And then he's dealing with this, with thoughts of, of, of a secret that his mom held and his, um, his parents divorced. Uh, I, I will say reading this multiple times and now talking about it, I kind of forgot he was planning on telling his father. Um, that's, that's interesting. I, I forgot about that. Um, he sits back and cries and feels self-pity, and then he feels like he's wasting tears. He's trying to get tough. Um, he's three days in and decides to start calling the lake home. Then, page 74, we see a bear. I'm gonna quick read this paragraph. It's pretty small. He could do nothing, think nothing. His tongue stained with berry juice stuck to the roof of his mouth, and he just stared at the bear. I added the word just. I stared at the bear. It was black with a cinnamon-colored nose, not 20 feet from him, and, and big. Not, or no, huge. It was uh, all black, all black fur and huge. He had seen one in the zoo in the city once, a black bear, but it had been from India or somewhere. This one was wild, much bigger than the one he saw at the zoo, and it was right there, right there. We get more repetition. 
Um, and then essentially we fast forward and he just says the bear was eating berries, not people. And he very smartly goes over to where the bear was and figures out that the bear was eating a bunch of raspberries. So now he's eating raspberries, not gut cherries. So he has found a source of food. Uh, next chapter, we have a little bit of a shelter. He, it's, it's a lean-to. I wouldn't call it a shelter, but that's what he has. Um, one night, a porcupine wanders in, and it spikes him. He tries to kind of kick at it, and the porcupine, like, releases spikes and spikes him, and he's in a lot of pain. Um, he has kind of a come-to-Jesus come to, come to Jesus moment where he basically says, I can't take it this way, alone with no fire and in the dark. Um, he needs to make some changes in the morning. Um, we will... Let me... Let me uh, after he says, I can't take it this way, has kind of a breaking moment. Um, I'm going to read a page 82 quote. He did not know how long it took, but later he looked back on the time, um, this time of crying in the corner of a dark cave and thought of it as he learned the most important rule of survival, which is feeling sorry for yourself didn't work. It wasn't just that it was wrong to do or that it was considered incorrect. It was more than that. It didn't work. When he was alone in the darkness, he cried and, and was done was all done with it. Nothing had changed. His legs still hurt. It was still dark. He was still alone. And the self-pity had accomplished nothing. I might be pulling, I don't know if you ever in school would read a book and the teacher would be like, I think the author's saying this. And you're like, what? Where did you get that? I'm gonna have one of those moments with you right now. I think this is a parallel to his parents' divorce. Now, everything in this book is so explicitly written. It, it maybe isn't that way because Paulson would have just said that. but. I, I'm not going to read that back a second time, but you could play it back if you want. It's page 82 in my book, the bottom half of the page. I think that that self-pity, that feeling bad about yourself and how it accomplishes nothing, I think that is somewhat of a parallel to feeling about his parents' divorce and his way of feeling like he needs to deal with it in that way. That's my opinion, but that's what I think he's, he's talking about here. Uh, Brian's and maybe even Gary Paulson kind of working that out as he writes a book. One more quick quote on the end of chapter seven. This is pretty significant as far as the storyline of the book. Um, fire, here's the quote, fire. The hatchet was the key to it all. When he threw the hatchet at the porcupine in the cave and missed and hit the stone wall, it had showered sparks. A golden shower of sparks in the dark as golden with fire as the sun was now. The hatchet was the answer. That was his father and Terry. Oh, that's what his father and Terry had been trying to tell him. Somehow, he could get fire from the hatchet. The sparks would make fire. I did not mention this, but he had a dream uh, about those people, and that's why uh, I know I kind of skipped that over. But he has fire. He throws a hatchet at a porcupine, and it hits the wall, not the porcupine, <laughs> and he pays for it by spikes in his legs. But uh, that's pretty cool. That's how he discovers fire, which is pretty cool. So he refines fire, essentially. He starts to get, get pretty good at making it, and then uh, he calls it his friend. He refers to fire as his friend. Then he gets to a point in this chapter where he wonders what his mother is doing right now and specifically who he, who she's with. Uh, and he has those kind of thoughts. Um, we get a nice reprieve in chapter 10 where the fire has almost eliminated the mosquitoes and given him light, warmth, security, confidence, and hope. Big deal, right, for someone who's in this position. Remember, 13-year-old alone in the woods, just saw someone die, crashed a plane, escaped the lake, saw a bear. I mean spiked by a porcupine in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> then he has fire, and the fire is his friend. Um, Brian hears a noise outside the shelter but feels okay because of the fire. That was just a note I wrote um, in the side of the book, which is which is interesting because that noise would have bothered him in the past. I think we're probably a week or so into this book at this point as far as him being in the wilderness. Uh, next morning, he sees tracks and laughs at himself for being a city boy and like not knowing what animal tracks they were. He then finds out uh, that he's it was a turtle. One funny thing, you can call this a criticism if you want, to criticize an author of 200 plus books is hilarious, I know. Um, Brian seems to know like spruces and trees and, and pines really well. Uh, I for I don't know when I was 13 if I knew the difference between pines and spruces, but then he doesn't know what, the, what turtle tracks are, which I feel like would look pretty... Um, unique to a different animal anyways he doesn't know what they are for the longest time then he finds turtle eggs uh, and that's this is a big deal this is part of a significant turning point in the book so i'm on my page 101 he finds turtle eggs turtle eggs greasy oily taste and then going down he says let me see yeah this is not a long quote he says he could not now believe the hunger the eggs had awakened it fully roaringly so it tore 
so that it tore at him. After the sixth egg, he ripped the shell open and licked the inside clean and went back and ripped another, uh, ripped the other five open and licked them out as, as well and wondered if he could eat the shells. <laughs> Think about that. Uh, there must be some food value in them. But when he tried, they were too leathery to chew and he couldn't get them down. So he hammers, I think about six, six turtle eggs, which I would think are pretty small. And then even tries to eat the shells. That's how hungry he is. So quick pause. Uh, how, how these chapters start is part of the reason this book grips me. It's like, it's like a hook. If you're on social media, everyone's into writing hooks. And a lot of times they're terrible. This is really interesting. Gary Paulson does this a couple times, and I've already referenced this once. He says, there were these things to do. So just think about reading this book. He's, he's at the end of page 102. He says, and he had to keep hoping. He had to keep hoping. Okay, we didn't get into that, but that's what he says. Then chapter 11, there were these things to do. I love that, that change and switch. That's a great transition for me. I, it just helps me stay in the chapter. Um, he tidies camp, and he has a good laugh. As he's cleaning the camp, he basically is like, look at this slob, like this 13-year-old kid living out here, um, you know, doing what he would do. Uh, I don't want to get into every quote in the book, but um, he basically, I, I have I have the thoughts of like a cluttered desk as a cluttered mind. He, he was something along the lines of like a cluttered camp. Uh, you, you can't be busy and, and productive in a cluttered camp. So, but there were these things to do. So he tidies the camp. He realizes that depression and busyness makes him feel better. And he experiences a personal change. I'll quick read this one. I am not the same, he thought. I see, I hear differently. And again, we're only about a weekend, but hey, go for it. Um, he did not know when the change started, but it was there. When a sound came to him now, he didn't just hear it, but he would know the sound. He would swing and look at it. Breaking a twig, a movement of air, he knew the sound as if it was somehow, and if, as if he somehow could move his mind back down the wave of the sound to the source. Uh, he feels like, he feels like he's changing. I feel like we got here kind of quietly. Like at one point he was just like, fire, I'm a friend of fire, I'm confident. And that just kind of happened. Um, but again, remember this is a 13 year old boy. That probably sounds about right. Things move kind of fast. Uh, action begets action. It's another thing I was just gonna say. Obviously Brian has learned this, maybe the hard way, but being depressed and whatever he starts moving and doing things finding eggs and berries and kind of staring down a bear without being without doing it on purpose and um action begets action and clutter makes him sad so he's he's getting things done um i do have a quote on page 104 oh i already read that okay so what that's um yeah he basically the the thing to know here is he's undergoing a personal change um I did write, we got here fast. We're a hundred pages in and he's kind of like moved into the woods essentially. Um, there were these things to do as referenced many times in this chapter. Again, I love that because it kind of opens, opens it up to like, what were those things before he gets to them? He says things like there were these things to do and then other parts he'll start a, a paragraph with things to do. Um, I will read a decent sized chunk on page 106, 107, because it explains a lot about where he is. And I think it might help set the stage. If, if you're thinking about this in your mind, you might be able to kind of see it. So uh, at last, the trip to the top of the stone bluff with wood, he stopped. He's getting wood for the fire. Sat on, sat on the point overlooking the lake and rested. The lake lay before him 20 or so feet below. And he had not seen it in this way since he had come in with the plane. Remembering the crash, he had a moment of fear, a breath-tightening little rip of terror, but it passed and was quickly caught in the beauty of the scenery. It was so incredibly beautiful that it was almost unreal. From the height, or from his height, he could see not just the lake, but across part of the forest, a green carpet. I love that personification of like seeing, if, I'm assuming he's seeing the top of trees here. Um, a green carpet and it was full of life, birds, insects. There was a constant hum and song. At the other end of the bottom of the L, there was another large rock sticking out of the water. And on the top of the rock, a snaggly pine had somehow found food and grown, bent and gnarled. Sitting on one limb was a bluebird with a crest and a sharp beak, a kingfisher. Again, how does he know that? <laughs> That's cool. He thought of a, oh, there you go. Sorry. He thought of a picture he had seen once, which left the branch. He watched and dove into the water. It emerged a split it emerged a split part of a second later. In its mouth was a small fish wiggling silver in the sun. It took the fish to a limb, juggled it twice, and swallowed it whole. 
And then another whole paragraph just says fish. So a couple things. He sees beauty. He's never rested yet. He sees beauty. Uh, he sees beauty and the practicality of what's in front of him by seeing that fish get super practical <laughs> or seeing that bird grab a fish. So that's significant because we're gonna get a lot of fish coming up here. So he starts to gather and make fishing supplies at this point. We get our first beauty and reward. Um, and the chapter ends with, there were these things to do. Again, I just love it so much. Uh, I'm trying to think if I'm missing anything here. He does reward his work. Um, he's kind of, he found more eggs and he's trying to save them. Uh, so he, he like rewards himself with another egg uh, because he, he made fishing equipment. All right, so he's all excited he made fishing equipment. The next chapter, it just starts with, the fish spear didn't work. <laughs> Absolute favorite start to any chapter in this book, chapter 12, the fish spear didn't work. It tells you everything you possibly need to know. Also, um, just don't know, if you guys keep a bookshelf in your home, my toddler decided to write all over these pages. And when I say write, I mean he like took a pen and just like, like up and down all over the pages. So there are a few words that I literally can't actually read on these pages. Um, you know, you get the gist of it, but he just, he chose page 111 to do some artwork on. So forever I'll have that as a gift. Thank you. Uh, he does hear a plane in chapter 12. Chapter 12, I don't have much to say. Otherwise he, he sees a plane. Um, there's one quote, I'll, I'll quick read it on 117. You'll be able to guess what happens by me reading this. Um, gone. He thought, finally, it was all gone. All silly and gone. No bows, no spears or fish or berries. It was all silly anyway, all just a game. He could do a day, but not forever. He could not make it if they did not come for him someday. He could not play the game without hope. Could not play the game without a dream. They had taken it all away from him now. They had turned away from him and there was nothing for him now. The plane was gone, his family gone, all of it gone. They would not come. He was alone and there was nothing for him. So you can guess the plane didn't didn't find him or see him. He, he really never even, he, I, don't, I don't know if he even sees it. He hears something and then it kind of starts to all fade away almost as soon as it comes. So he's running out of hope. Um, yeah, there's a couple, couple lines about he, he's looking deep into the water, kind of reflecting. Um, he sees a mother wolf and he recognizes in that moment that he's changing. I think it's because he's not super scared. He more so just... I just, he sees a wolf and he's like, hey, we're both here. Um, let me read uh, one small quote just in reference to this wolf. He was not the same now. The Brian that stood and watched the wolves move away and nodded to them was completely changed. Time had come, time that had measured, that he measured but didn't care about. Time had come into his life and moved out and left him different. In measure, in measured time, 47 days had passed since the crash. 42 days, he thought, since he had died and been born as the new Brian. He does fight some dark thoughts here coming up. Um, I'll quick read this. So just right after that about he's changed, he, he says, or he, um, he wanted to be done. So I'll just, I guess I'll summarize. Summary. He says things like there's, he just feels madness, a hissing madness that took his brain. Um, he thought about where does he want to die? Uh, he settled into a gray funk feels dark um and he tried to end it by cutting himself um which which then he says is madness and he, and he didn't do it um interesting though uh, especially because this book's pretty pretty pg and then you think about that again 13 year old boy with a hatchet having some dark thoughts in the middle of nowhere by himself um just it's just interesting i suppose there's nothing really else to say i just i find that intriguing and a little bit visceral and, and worth worth mentioning you know that's i feel like that's actually a pretty normal reaction to being alone for 50 days and feeling um, potentially hopeless and fighting kind of the battle of hope and uh so so that i that i thought was kind of the first part of the book where you get a really raw part of brian mm -mm -mm. i guess going forward here chapter 13 he says um he makes a bone arrow and he gets his first hit he earns a fish and we get the quote, he had done food, which is awesome. He had done food. Um, he then built a newer, sturdier shelter and he finds his way to keep fresh fish. He kind of traps them and um, uh, they're alive when he comes and gets them at this point, as opposed to going out and having to find new fish every time. Um, here's a quick quote. He says, uh, but, hope it, but hope in his knowledge, hope in the fact that he could learn and survive and take care of himself. Tough hope, he thought. Uh, that night. I am full of tough hope. 
And depression led to action, which led to hope. Action begets action. I know I've said that before, but I'll probably say it many times. Those type of books grip me for sure. Um, he has a couple thoughts like don't get sprayed by skunk. Food has to be protected. Uh, don't get sick. Don't sprain an ankle. A big takeaway is here. He, he builds a sturdier shelter. He protects his food better and he finds a way to keep his fish alive. So that's, that's a big thing here. We have some time passing on page 137. A day was nothing, not a thing to remember. It was just the sun coming up, going down and some light in the middle. But events, events were burned into his memory and he used them to remember time, to know that to know and to remember what had happened and to keep a mental journal. There had been the, the day of first meet. That had been a day that started like the rest. After that, the sun came up, cleaned the camp and make sure there's enough wood on the, uh, for another night. But it, was long, but it was a long time, a long time of eating fish and looking for berries and he craved more. He craved more food, heavier food, deeper food. So he has his first meat, which is fish, um, but it's kind of like he, he wants more. He finds these birds called, he calls them fool birds. So fool birds in the Canadian wilderness, north woods, um, and they have a bad odor, but he eats them anyway. And he tries to use quote, like all of the bird, which I can respect. Um, so he's not wasting anything. So he eats meat for the first time. Um, let's quick, just I'll, I'll glance through this on page 145. It's the end of the chapter. It's, it's a, kind of a cool quote. Never, never in all the food, all the hamburgers, all the malts, all the fries or meals at home, Never in all the candy or pies or cakes, never in all the roasts or steaks or pizzas, never in all the submarine sandwiches, never, never, never had he tasted anything as fine as the first bite. And then it says first meat. So a fool bird, just doing a little bit of research, I was kind of curious, um, grew up in Minnesota. There's a lot of hunting, a lot of grouse hunting. So this is a spruce grouse, if you want to look it up. It's a spruce grouse. Two only things I've referenced outside of the book are the Cessna 406 plane and the spruce grouse. Um, it's the size of a chicken. It's also called a fool hen, a black partridge, a Canada grouse, or a spotted grouse. So if you're a hunter, you might recognize some of those terms. He shot one with a bow and arrow that he made. He recognized his first days. So there was like first meat and then the first fool bird meat. And then there was first arrow day, first rabbit day. Um, so those are kind of some recognized first days things. Um, here is a quick turn. We're going to take a turn down to Brian being humbled again. I'm going to read two paragraphs and I want you to try to put yourself in this position. It was very nearly the last act of his life. Later, he would not know why he started to turn some smell or sound, a tiny brushing sound, but something caught his ear or nose and he began to turn and had and had his head half around. It's tough to say, Gary. When he saw a brown wall of fur detach itself from the forest to his rear and come down on him like a runaway truck. I thought that was very well written. I'm going to quick, I stumbled around, so I'm going to do that again. A tiny brushing sound, but something caught his ear or nose and that began to turn. And he, he had his head half around when he saw a brown wall of fur detach itself from the forest to his rear and come down on him like a runaway truck. He just had time to see that it was a moose. He knew them from the pictures, but did not know, could not guess how large they were. When it hit him, it was a cow and she had no horns, but she took him in the left side of the back with her forehead, took him and threw him down onto the water and then came after him to finish the job. He had another half second to fill his lungs with air and she was on him again, using her head to drive him down into the mud to the bottom. Insane, he thought, just that word, insane. Mud filled his eyes, his ears, the horn boss, <laughs> the horn boss on the moose drove him deeper and deeper into the bottom muck. He suddenly, and suddenly it was over and he felt alone. He sputtered to the surface, sucking air and in panic. So he, he gets hit by a moose. I'm gonna blast through some things. He gets destroyed by a moose. He experiences his first big storm and his entire area is ruined. Um, and he has a rough night. Um, here's kind of a chapter summary. A uh, little bit of one. The morning had been fat, well, almost fat, and happy, sure of everything, with good weapons and food and sun on his face. Skipping ahead. Um, looking good for the future, and inside of one day, just one day, he had been run over by a moose and a tornado. There was an actual tornado. I, I forgot to mention that. He lost everything and was back to square one just like that. A flip of a giant coin, and he was the loser. But there was a difference now, he thought. There was really a difference. I might be hit, but I'm not done. When the light comes, I'll start to rebuild. I still have a hatchet, and that's all I had in the first place. 
What I like is when he says, when the light comes. So we have a confident Brian now. He's gonna go back to sleep. He's gonna get a fire going, probably sleep under the stars with no lean-to tonight. And he knows that's okay. Really interesting. I thought that was pretty cool. He's definitely growing up a little bit after he gets wrecked by a moose. There is a moment, chapter 158, uh, again, this isn't criticism. This is just something I noticed. He says, I, and it's not a quote. Um, so there, that was the difference now. He had changed and he was tough. I'm tough where it counts. Tough in the head. I guess we just switch to this is now, you know, this is now a, um, this is now a first person in that moment. I, I just, I didn't, I didn't know he did that. So he rebuilds camp, thinks about what's on the plane, and he thinks, I would be so rich if I went and got onto that plane. <laughs> so he watches the flames of fire and then kind of uh, plans to go onto the plane. Uh, and get it. He 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 makes a, a raft called the brush pile. Uh, he calls it the brush pile, which is kind of cool. He experiences loss of temper as he tries to make this kind of interesting. Um, he has some pre-sleep thoughts uh, that I won't get into, but basically page 170. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to think a lot when I'm falling asleep and I related to Brian here really well. And him and I are very similar. He goes to bed thinking, if there was just a candy bar on that plane, it would have been worth it. And that's, I, I just wrote, yep, Ryan and I are pretty similar. So he bashes his way onto the plane. Um, and this is a, I, I won't read every quote, but I, I kind of felt like he's athletic. Like he shows some athleticism here. Um, he first tries, so he drops his hatchet into the deep lake and he's so mad and he, he dives down and it's too shallow, loses breath, comes back up. Second attempt, he hits his face on the bottom of the lake and then eventually finds the hatchet and comes back up. I just love that about Brian. He goes and gets it. He takes no prisoners. He doesn't wait. I just love that. Um, a quick quote while he's in the plane. In the light coming through the side window, the pale green light from the water, he saw the pilot's head, only it wasn't the pilot's head any longer, the fish. He'd never really thought of it, but the fish. The fish had been eating all this time and they had to eat too. They had been at the pilot all this time, almost two months, nibbling and chewing. All that remained was not quite clean skull that looked up and wobbled loosely. Ooh, gives you the shivers a little bit. Um, he had done it though. He, he Literally the chapter ends with he had done it. He, he got to the plane, he got a big pack that he needed, put it on his brush pile raft, and then we come to treasure. Un unbelievable riches, he's back on shore. He couldn't believe the contents of the survival pack. I'm not going to read everything, but basically everything you'd want to take camping, he has now found. Um, incredible wealth is what he says. He does have an interesting, um, given that Gary Paulson served in the army, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, he finds a 22 rifle and he has some con conflicting thoughts. He says it was a strange feeling holding the rifle. It somehow removed him from everything around him. The rifle changed him. The minute he picked it up, he wasn't sure he liked the change very much. He set it aside, leaning it carefully against the wall. He could deal with that feeling later. I thought that was interesting. We don't ever get back to this, and I'm about to tell you why, but I thought that was an interesting, I don't know if he's making a point about guns or if he feels like this this removes some independence, or I thought he's gonna become reliant on it and then he's gonna run out of ammunition and not have ammunition. What, is he about to make bullets? Like, so I thought that was interesting. Um, he rummages through, through the food packets. He finds a bar of soap. And then he sees an emergency transmitter. He flips it on uh, and he thought, you know, it looks like I might be found eventually, but all this is happening. He's looking through these riches and a plane appears. Uh, it passed directly over him, very low, tipped wing, sharply over the tail of the crashed plane in the, in the lake, cut power, glided down the long part of the L. Um, and then here's Brian, he had not moved. Basically, the, the plane lands gent gently bumping on the water. He had not moved. It had all happened so fast that he hadn't moved. He sat with a pot of orange drink still in his hand. He made an orange drink from the, from the uh, pack he got. Staring at the plane, not quite understanding it yet, not quite knowing yet that it was over. The pilot cut the engine, opened the door, got out, balanced and stepped forward on the float to hop onto the sand without getting his feet wet. I heard your emergency transmitter. Then I saw your plane and I came over. Aren't you? You're that kid. My name's Brian Robeson, he said. Then he saw that his stew was done. The peach whip was almost done. And he waved with his hand. Would you like something to eat? 
that's that's how the book ends. Uh, it's just amazing. So the there is an epilogue, um, about four or five pages. It's basically a survival guide. It's really cool, actually. Um, but if you're like me, you want to know kind of where Brian's at. Um, we have a few times where it's like there were many questions. Like he just references kind of vaguely things like he has throughout the book. Um, we find out that he was on the L-shaped lake for 54 days. During that time, he lost 17% of his body fat, which I'm wondering if Brian was kind of heavy going in because that's a really big amount. Um, but also when you're 13, you have higher body fat just because you're a kid. So I don't know, but he said he gained six of it back. Um, so I, I, I'm conflicted about reading the end to you. I won't read the end, but um, I will say that he references his parents and his father, and it does softly leave the door open not only for another book, because Brian thinks a lot about the wilderness after this and potentially, you know, what, what would it look like if it happened again? But he also, there's just a lot of things like he wants to say to family members that he doesn't say because he's alone the whole book. So that's how the book ends. Um, I love the humor in the ending. Uh, do you want something to eat? As he's making like peach whip and orange drink. <laughs> it's just awesome. He's like settling in. Like, I think this is my life now. And then he immediately gets found. I just love it. Um, I, I mean, I teared up reading this book the first four times and then now I'm, it's just, you know, I can't read, I can't wait to read this book to my son. My son at the time of this recording is five. Uh, one of them is five and um, he will love this book. I just sometimes think that there are some images. I'm just like, maybe we might be able to wait a little bit, but uh, great book, recommend it to anybody. If you heard this summary and think, hey, uh, I don't need to read it now. That's enough for me, then great. Um, if you want something similar, so that's a, probably the, the order I'm going to do. I'm going to introduce the author. We'll talk about why did I pick this book. Um, if you have a book suggestion, put it as a five-star review or message me on LinkedIn or do both. And um, you can uh, you can do that. I believe my personal email is also listed on my contact on LinkedIn. It doesn't let me take it away. Email me if you want. I just don't use my email like that. But uh, yeah, those are the ways to get to me. You can leave a five-star review. You can um, DM me on LinkedIn. You can send me an email if you want. And uh, I would love to hear your book recommendations. It has to be fiction. And I, may, I might say no. So just be okay with that. I've got an entire pile behind me of books I'm going to get to. Um, varying from author... You know, some authors are dead, some authors are poets, um, some authors, I'm gonna read the book in the middle of a series. Sometimes it will be the beginning of a series like this one. Maybe we'll end up doing the whole series of Hatchet if you guys want to. Um, but I'm hoping either this summary was helpful for you and maybe you're gonna be intrigued to go read it now, or it was like, hey, you know what? I probably wasn't gonna read the book, but now I'm glad I know what it's about because maybe someone, someone I know will couple similar books and i'm just gonna be honest i didn't like this book as much to compare to hatchet personally is probably not possible but my side of the mountain by gene craighead george is very similar uh and then in a similar way but not really um my favorite author is cormac mccarthy and he has a book called the crossing which is also the first of three books but there's a lot of like wilderness survival. There's a lot of wolf stuff in that book. And it just reminded me of Hatchet a little bit. Very different, but also have some similarities. The most similar book I've read to this one is, is My Side of the Mountain. Um, I'm excited to see again. But like I said, if you want to leave a review, I would be honored. Please just include a book recommendation. I'd love to know what you think, but also include a book. Uh, I, I will reference you or shout you out if you, were, if you include a book recommendation for me to get into the pile. We've got a lot to come. A thousand more to go. Thank you.